I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On Life Through, episode 181. Captain Phil interviews me about the recent solar eclipse, politics, online education, the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic, and much, much more. Yep, we conducted a two-hour interview, or Phil interviewed me for two hours the other day on a show on WUSB, that Stony Brook Radio, and you're going to hear the whole two hours in a few seconds. So sit back and enjoy. The Light on Light Through podcast. Someone who exists in a ring of fire, Paul Levinson is on with me. Hello, Paul. How are you doing this morning? Hey, I'm doing great. I fell into a ring of fire. Great. You know, I, I was watching the, I, I could see the eclipse from my driveway. And luckily for me, I had um, my, my, um, eclipse glasses from the 2007 eclipse they were still in my truck from when um i saw that eclipse we actually were watching that eclipse from uh, from the new york state thruway uh we had helped my uh, my kid move um from some apartment or whatever up in potsdam they moved in with their partner and in this apartment and we wanted to see the eclipse on the way home and we had to pull over at the throughway because we didn't get home before it started. Um, but it was kind of an amazing uh, event then, and I was glad I had the, the, the glasses. This was kind of neat. The only difficulty was it happened uh, at 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you you were looking uh, at the eclipse. I was looking at the inside of my eyelids. The, the only reason, I have a really firm policy, the only reason I would ever get up at 6 o'clock in the morning is to have a conversation with someone like you. Oh, yeah. I mean, other than that, I, mean, I, you know, I, I never turned down a media request. But uh, I actually, I have been filling in for a six a.m. show, and like you, Paul, I do not get up to do that show live. I send in a pre-recorded program, which is mostly music, because I assume people don't want to hear my voice at first <laughs> six o'clock in the morning. Um, and it, and it was a great pleasure to do that. You know, I, I was thinking about you this morning because, A, you agreed to come on and, and fill in for Bill McNulty, and B, I was watching the local news reports, and I was finding it interesting that the, not so much the weather people, but the but the actual anchors were tripping over the term ring of fire, and, you know, whenever science is seriously brought up in a broadcast, whether it be something that's predictable, like a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse or you know, a meteor, not a meteor storm, but, you know, like, like a comet passed by or, or like the, uh, when, when they have the, um, the, you know, the local meteor, the annual meteor, uh, shower, uh, that I forgot the name of it that comes by every August. Um, they tend to get all funny, you know, they tend to get all goofy and, and like, it's like, it's, like they're talking about lost in space, you know? <laughs> right? You know, or the 1978 version of Battlestar Galactica. They think it's greasy kid stuff, and it's it's the real deal, you know. Um, you know, was was the media different 
back in the day when it came to these these sort of things? Uh, was it was it reported correctly? Because I really felt they were abusing the term Ring of Fire. I, I, we did not see the Ring of Fire up here uh, near Albany. We saw a crescent sun, <laughs> you know, and that's what right. we saw. Um, what say you, Paul? Well, it's interesting. You know, the traditional way that any science story was reported on television or even radio was they would bring in an expert, a scientist. They, they would bring in an astronomer, uh, you know, someone who, who studied eclipses and whatever the science was. What's happened to some extent is, and who knows, this might be another uh, ill effect of the uh, horrendous pandemic. But what's happened is, with the exception of the pandemic, when there are a plethora of experts, uh, when it comes to most other science stories now, the, the, the people, uh, you know, in front of the camera just, uh, wing it. You know, either they know what they're talking about or they don't. And they probably take a quick glance at Wikipedia before they, uh, get on the air. And by the way, that's not to denigrate Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Oh, oh no, I'm, I'm literally people. looking at Wikipedia as you said that, by the way. <laughs> right. See, so you're an example of what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, uh, so, but look, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough time to do any story that either is not the pandemic or politics mm -hmm. be, because everyone is so, understandably drenched in that why because it's literally a matter of life or death that when when something else comes up it, it's bound to even if they give it coverage not get the full on-hand treatment to people who know what they're talking about so i'm not surprised uh, at, at all and you know the eclipse is it's fun to look at it's very profound in a way but Fortunately, no one lives or dies uh, based on an eclipse, although in primitive cultures, as you know, you know, eclipses are thought to be end, the, the imminent end of the world, and it was only by praying or something that you could get the sun back. So uh, they're, they're serious business. I, I should mention, by the way, that I've been especially tuned into the sun these past few weeks because I've been up on Cape Cod uh, and we have a little cottage by the bay, and wow, you, you get the, the most gorgeous sunsets I've seen anywhere in the world. And by the way, if anybody wants to see pictures of some of those, just take a look at my Instagram account, at Paul Levins. And uh, you know, I, I try to post a picture just about every night. But you really get a sense of the relationship of the sun to the earth, when, when you can literally see, obviously the sun setting, it's not the sun moving, it's the earth, you know, tipping up in effect. And it, it really gives you a sense of where you are in this part of the universe in a way that you just don't get on an ordinary day. And an eclipse is even obviously more profound than a sunset because it happens very rarely. And you know what's, you know, I'm glad you brought up the, um, you know, it's an evil omen, that sort of thing. I, it, it, it's, it's, fu it's fun because um, last time there was a full eclipse, 
when it happens, the it seems to me the weather changes slightly. So when my alarm went off at 5.15 and I got myself into a vertical position, it took a little while, I went outside to the driveway and, and you know, the, the sun comes up over this hill near where I live now. There's not a lot of trees on my property. There's actually almost no trees on my property. Uh, uh, something I'm, I'm very grateful for because we used to have a tremendous amount of leaves and stuff when we lived on Long Island. So the sun was going to come up over the hill, which meant um, that I was going to see the eclipse a little bit later than the rest of the area. And I guess I could have gone on that hill, but that's somebody else's property. And I wasn't going to stand there. And I was in my pajamas, too. I wasn't going to get dressed. I I could stand in my pajamas in my old driveway. And as the sun started coming up, uh, it started to get a little bit darker because, you know, the, the... the sun is being blocked by the moon, and the wind picked up. And I always noticed the eclipses that I've that I've been that I've seen in my life. I've always noticed a change in the wind and the temperature when they happen. And it to give uh, credence, you know, to the idea that this is an omen. You know, that's that's the vibe I get. And I'm standing there at, at like five thirty, five forty-five a.m., and I'm feeling this cool wind blowing on me. You know, on this summer day or close to summer day and it's like wow you know it really felt like a a, it really felt like a real eclipse you know it really felt like it's really you know this is this is you know there's magic in the air i guess is what i'm trying to impart and it's just something that connects us to the rest of the universe this is something that's been going on before we arrived on the planet and it's gonna be going on after we leave you know however we leave so it's kind of like it makes you feel part of the universe in a small way it absolutely does and it also spotlights for want of a better word one of the keystones of our humanity and our human intelligence because the the fact that we can understand what's going on now a long long time ago human beings understood at least that hey they had recollections or stories had even been passed down from generation to generation about eclipses. So they knew the world wasn't going to end. They thought maybe, they thought maybe you had to pray in a certain way, but, but that was really the beginning of human understanding of these profound phenomena, which are with us all the time, but the solar eclipse very rarely. But today, it's much more obviously than just, uh, you know, understanding that the world's not going to end. We understand very precisely what's going on. And it's a good thing we have that knowledge. Because again, to get back to the pandemic, you know, think about the Black Plague. It wiped out as much as three-fifths of the world's population. They didn't have vaccines. They actually did understand that you should cover your face, by the way. So uh, just to jump ahead to something we'll no doubt be talking about, the people back in the Middle Ages were smarter than many Republicans today. But they, they, they got, hey, you need to cover your face. Uh, but wow, think about three out of five people in some parts of the world, in some cities in Europe, died uh, in in. Uh, response to the black plague just wiped them out i see 
I, I seem to remember reading about the Black Plague and that they thought cats were evil or cats were like, you know, associated with witches. So they got rid of cats, which would have done a lot to reduce the rat population. Or no, I'm talking about bubonic plague, right? Not the is that the Black right. Plague? Am I am I crossing am I crossing the streams here, Paul? Did I get it no, right? No, uh, they are two slightly different plagues, but they pretty much both had the same effect. The, the black, I think they're, uh, they're both caused by, uh, uh, actually a somewhat similar kind of bacteria, but, uh, they are actually different. By the way, we were talking just a few minutes ago about people in the media not knowing what they're talking about. Pro- probably some historian or, uh, epidemiologist will, uh, if, if he or she is listening, will realize that what I'm saying is not quite right. But, but I'm pretty sure the Black Plague and the Bubonic Plague were two slightly different plagues. But you're not wrong to bring that up because they both had uh, the, that uh, horrendous effect. Mm-hmm. There's another lesson, by the way, that I often you know, mention to my students when we talk about these things. And that's that you, you can look at this in two ways. One, it wiped out three-fifths of the world's population in some areas. But what about the two-fifths that survived? Uh, maybe they, they did have a natural immunity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that also tells us that we still don't know a lot and understand a lot about COVID-19. Uh, although we've understood an enormous amount in a short period of time. Well, that's always been my great fear also uh, with COVID-19 is that, yes, we're coming out of this uh, pandemic. Yes, things are opening up. A, I don't. we don't know the long-term effects of COVID-19 because it's only been about a year and a half or so, and we don't know what's going to happen down the road in terms of, you know, are there long-lasting effects, you know, health effects, you know, as you age. And B, mutations, <laughs> you know, and there are areas of the world right now, it's Mexico and Peru, I believe, where it's still running fairly wild. And I mean, it's great to have access to vaccinations, but it's a virus. And if not, you know, if there is a group of human beings that aren't vaccinated, then we haven't defeated it. <laughs> That's how viruses work. I know enough science to know that. So if, you know, if, Let's say if Delaware decides it wasn't going to vaccinate any of the people who live in Delaware, wouldn't we be in serious trouble? Because as we move through our areas and stuff like that, we come in contact with people. I'm not saying that Delaware is doing that. I'm just saying, mentioning a state that's close to us. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter that we're vaccinated, you know, when they're not. Everybody needs to be vaccinated all over the world, especially now in the 21st century where people can travel so easily all around the world. These sort of things will just spread like wildfire, and I think we need to keep that in our in our mind. Absolutely, and good for Biden mm-hmm. for getting these vaccines out to the people uh, around the world. In addition to everything else that Trump did, that was so horrendous. He looked at this whole situation with the pandemic in this in this incredibly short sighted nationalistic way which goes completely contrary to what you just said if the virus is alive and rampant anywhere in the world uh, it's a danger to everyone in the world so what does trump do he withdraws from uh 
the WHO organization pulls back internationally. And, you know, he, he didn't create the virus. I'll give him that. But, but other than that, he did just about everything wrong and in, in an indirect way. Yeah. Is responsible for who knows how many people losing their lives. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It really, truly is, uh, you know, and, and I mean, I said that statement and I want to, I want to mention to the audience who are listening, I had to take freshman biology twice. I failed it the first time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I know enough about viruses with that my layman's knowledge of, of, of science, you know, and, and I know enough that this is a virus. It's going to do this thing. A virus, you know, is, you know, it, it exists for one reason. It exists to find a place where it can make copies of itself. And unfortunately, when it makes copies of itself, people get sick. And in some cases they die, but that's what viruses do. And they don't do it because you voted for a Democrat doesn't do it because you voted for a Republican. It does it because that's what it does, period. You know, it's basically the shark in Jaws. And Trump decided he was going to be the mayor of the of the, of the the town of Amity. <laughs> you know? yeah, that's right. I mean, but, but the, <laughs> the level of ignorance. I crack myself up. I, well, no, it was very funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, the, uh, the level of ignorance you know, beginning with Trump and going all the way down among many Republicans is, is amazing. You know, Louis Gomez, he came down uh, with COVID-19 and mm -hmm. um, he, he attributed that to his wearing a mask. Yes. He, yeah. Right? He, he was interviewing him. I, I don't know. Like, uh, maybe I somehow picked it up in this mask. <laughs> so, I mean... It, not only is he out of his mind, he's out of his mind in a way that he has the completely opposite, incorrect explanation of, of what's going on. And and speaking of Louis Gohmert, we want to yeah. talk. I want to talk about that. And then, and thank you for for bringing that in. I'm queuing up a little music here to play behind you. Um, here we go. There we go. So Louis Gohmert has has decreed that we um, have the ability to conquer climate change by changing the orbit of the moon <laughs> or wow. the earth. And he just went public with that assertion uh, this week. And it's one of these things where you think, is, is somebody playing him on Saturday Night Live? <laughs> is, is, is this Listen, I, He's a science fiction writer. That's what's going on. I'm just writing, by the way, for, for those few of you who are listening who may have read some of my novels, my Phil D'Amato character in the Silk Code and uh, the Consciousness Plague and the Chronology Protection Case and the Pixel Eye. Anyway, I'm writing a new Phil D'Amato novel, and I'm not going to mention the name of it because I don't want to give it away, but it has to do with attempts to control the weather and use it as a weapon. So, I mean, it, 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 it's a great idea for science fiction that you could do something like change the moon's orbit and control the tides and <laughs> you know, do whatever you want. I, I love it. I mean, uh, if I were uh, uh, Louis Gohmert, I would, uh, hey, maybe somebody can send him Stan Schmidt's email 
and uh, Spano Puppets Analog. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I mean, look, it's a good idea, but I mean, but look, I, he really is a pathetic character. I don't know if you saw the part of, you know, the end of that terrible January 6th where they did finally count and certify the votes in the Electoral College. And you may recall the way that works, each state is certified, but before the state is certified, if a member of the House of Representatives joined by a member of the Senate has an objection to certifying the votes of that state, then they do a complete roll call of the Senate and the House, which you know, at the very least can delay things. So, so Louis Gomez, of course, was objecting as a representative, and it, you know he couldn't even get Holly or any of the other of those you know of senators to join him, uh, and, and so basically he was up there with his objection, and then Pence, you, you can see he was almost feeling sorry for Gomez, and he's saying, "Look, I'm sorry, you don't have a, you know a senator." to join you in this uh, objection, so I'm not going to be able to <laughs> gavel any objection. And, and Goldman, he just had no idea what was going on. He's cracking crying. So, I mean, this guy, I mean, to say the least, he sorely needs an education. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know who would give it to him. Uh, there must be some school that could help someone like I, that. I think it's too late. I think it's too late. Um, <laughs> You don't know this, Paul, but since we were talking about changing the orbit of the moon, I'm playing the soundtrack to Space 1999 uh, behind us as we're talking here, which is appropriate when you're talking about the moon leaving uh, Earth's orbit or moving, <laughs> adjusting Earth's orbit. Um, it it boggles my mind that um, that someone in Congress can consider this. It just seems like beyond belief that... He wouldn't know this, that this is not possible. But you're right. It would make for a great science fiction story. I mean, I like Space 1999, so. <laughs> yeah. I was going say, but it, again, it's consistent. It's exactly the same thing, isn't it? Where, uh, I mean, everyone knows who said this. Uh, so, you know, sunlight, uh, it, it kills germs, right? Uh, maybe we can get some sunlight. Yeah. Inside, yeah. Right? And, right. And he turns to a poor doctor sitting in the back, and all she can say is, well, yes, sunlight does kill bacteria, but I guess, like, what is she going to say? I mean, so, this is you know, do you miss those? Do you miss those hearings when he was, I mean, when he was getting on there and, and having the COVID hearings? You know, do, do you miss yeah. that? Because that was sort of like really theater of the absurd. And you could just, I mean, I just loved just watching Fauci. React to this nonsense he was saying, and then sometimes his his business buddies would would try to get into his head a little bit, so he would mention some quack thing on you know in one of these speeches. So there, people would start buying their stuff, you know, and they would try <laughs> to get some something something to him. I think that's where this 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 uh, that drug he was he was pushing for a while, you know, came about, and and also the whole UV light inside your body sort of thing. So, yeah. Listen, I mean, I got to tell you, so I already mentioned we're up on Cape Cod and my wife always like packs, you know, a lot of things, including pillows that we keep oh, you no. know, packed up all year round. Yes, you see where this is going. Oh, no. <laughs> and I could not believe it. You know, and she couldn't either. Uh, so we still haven't burned it. I'm not sure what we're going to do with this guy's pillow. 
I said, you're not putting your head on that lunatic's pillow. My, my pillow or Mr. Pillow, whatever. It's my pillow, my pillow. Yeah. And, yeah. and, yeah. and <laughs> the funny thing about that, the my pillow and, 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 and well, for, for me is that my wife, Annette, has, uh, has a terrible back. And so she's constantly like adjusting and, you know, we have adjustable beds and we, you know, whatever. And that actual pillow she really liked. I know. My wife said the same thing. That's, that really hurts. She said, it's a good pillow. <clears throat> so I said, look, if Adolf Hitler made a pillow, you wouldn't need it, right? Yes. So, <laughs> but I just have to say, though, about uh, Anthony Fauci, um, and you and I were talking about this before, I've gotten into a whole argument with a bunch of people on Facebook because I guess it was about a week ago when the Republicans decided, okay, who can we pick on now? You know, we can't pick on Hillary anymore. I mean, we can, but, you know, she doesn't hold any position of authority. Oh, here's a a good person we can pick on, uh, Anthony Fauci. And so now if you, uh, you know, have a strong enough stomach, to watch any of Tucker Carlson, which actually I don't. I just occasionally see a clip of something he says on MSNBC or CNN. But but he is leading a charge uh, against Fauci. Uh, and again, it's exactly what we've been talking about. It's just blatantly lying, taking the truth and turning that truth on its head. So now in, in this new demonology, uh, Fauci made things worse in the pandemic. He was wrong all along. Not only that, he, he did not help at all in terms of uh, getting a handle on the terrible AIDS uh, epidemic decades ago. And uh, as a matter of fact, someone on Facebook, when I posted, I, I said, you know what? Not, I think that Facebook and Twitter and social media were right to ban Trump and in addition to that, they should ban any Republican who is attacking Fauci. And I have to say, you know, as you know, Phil, I am pretty close to an absolutist regarding the First Amendment. Yep. I don't want, like to see any censorship. But when you talk about social media banning someone, in the first place, you, you have to recognize it's not the government that's doing the banning. So it's not a violation of the First Amendment which says Congress shall make no law. That's the federal government. The 14th Amendment has extended the uh, prohibitions against censorship in the First Amendment to state and courts have found even municipal governments. So all of that is government. Last time I checked, Twitter and Facebook were not the government. So technically they have the right to ban anyone they please. But I do recognize that it is a kind of censorship, and I don't like censorship. And in general, I don't support anything that violates what I consider to be the spirit of the First Amendment. And, you know, you, you see this, for example, and hear this or don't hear this every time CBS in a Grammy uh, Awards night uh, and someone gets up there and they're singing a rap or a hip-hop yep, song, yep. every other word out of their mouth is bleep. I think that's terrible. I think people should boycott CBS as a result of it. But I think, even though I don't like it, I think Twitter and Facebook and, and the other social media were right to ban Trump because his words were a direct incitement to violence. And, and we saw what happened on January 6th. And these attacks on Fauci are endangering 
human lives in a different but still very palpable way. Every person who doesn't get vaccinated because they believe this nonsense about Fauci and think it's all some kind of a trick to, again, like get inside our bodies, God knows what, uh, th that person could well die of the virus eventually and or disseminate it to other people who will die. So this is a direct threat to human life. And I'm sick and tired, frankly, of these Republicans just making stuff up. You know, you've heard me talk about this before. One of the things that I've studied in communication history is propaganda. And in particular, the practice of propaganda in Nazi Germany. And, and Joseph Goebbels, who had a PhD from the University of Heidelberg that he earned in 1922. So he was not just a raving lunatic. He was a bright guy. You know, he, he knew what he was doing. Unfortunately, what he was doing was figuring out how in a very literate, aware citizenry, which is what was in the Weimar Republic in Germany in the 1920s, how the Nazis could achieve power and stay in power. And one of the uh, techniques he came up with is, and you know, it's, you still hear this sometime today, is the big lie. And what Goebbels realized, and it goes contrary to common sense, but nonetheless, it is the case. If you're going to lie, the best way of convincing people with your lies, make the lie as big and outrageous and as further away from the truth as you possibly can. Because if the lie is too close to the truth, people will realize it's a lie. And so that's what the Nazis did. They just made up stuff. And I'm not saying that current Republicans are Nazis, although some of them are. But I am saying that any Republican who traffics in these kinds of lies, just making stuff up, two and two equals five, you know, yeah, it is humorous when the stuff they make up is, hey, hey, how about drinking some disinfectant? That'll help. You know, that that's yeah. funny in a sick way. But 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 in many cases, it's not even funny. It's just a direct threat to human lives, and they can't be arrested for that because that would violate the First Amendment. But they certainly don't need to have a platform on any social media system. You are listening to Paul Levinson with Captain Phil, filling in for Bill McNulty on Lunch on Thursdays here on WUSB Stony Brook. It is 1135 in the a.m. We have survived a partial solar eclipse. There was no evil omens. And we're discussing um, the demonization of Anthony Fauci. If you, Paul, you probably saw it. If you saw the interview with Anthony Fauci on the Rachel Maddow show, um, yes. I found that incredibly impressive i found fauci going back you know into his history when he was working with the aids epidemic and the aids virus that he welcomed him there, there were of course were were people and this this was an epidemic that ronald reagan pretty much ignored uh, because of the people it was affecting you know the 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 gay men um and 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 in some cases, people, you know, were saying that this is a plague upon them because they're sinners, yada, yada, yada. Anthony brought these protests and, 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 you know, the people, you know, to their credit, you know, people protested. They were serious about protesting. 
But Anthony Fauci actually listened to them, and he created, you know, a great amount of allies, including um, one of the current best um, reporters, I think, currently, maybe maybe a little skewed toward the left, Rachel Maddow, you know, who is gay herself. Um, um, so it, it, it really boggles my mind when I hear stories like you're encountering right now about Fauci that he created this, he's exploiting this, he's this, he's that. Fauci's been doing this for, for decades. He didn't roll up his sleeves and says, now is the time for me to pounce <laughs> and go all Dr. Evil on us. It, it, Fauci's career is to deal with viruses and, and pandemics and epidemics. That's what he does. That's, you know, and, and he does it pretty well, I think. Um, I don't understand why we had to demonize him, you know, and, and, and where that where I mean, I actually I do understand why we demonized him. We're demonizing him or, or they're demonizing him because um, Trump needs to have somebody to run against in 2024. He needs to have an enemy. He needs to have someone uh, for for his followers to chant, lock him up, lock him up. And Fauci now um, is is in, in the crosshairs. Um, you think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this, Paul? Yes. We're going to be seeing a lot more of it because that's all the Republicans know. And let's face it, it worked in 2016. I mean, it barely worked. Hillary did win the popular vote, but she lost the Electoral College. And in part, it was because of the incessant demonization of, of Hillary Clinton over that email nonsense. I think it was Bill uh, Maher who said, you know, hey, it's the equivalent of parking in the wrong space in a parking lot. It's such a minor infraction. Uh, and uh, you, everybody uh, knew that. The Republicans knew that, but they just kept on hammering away on that. And obviously, uh, James Comey didn't help things by coming out just a few weeks before the election saying he was reopening that investigation and then a few days before the election saying, oh, well, we're closing the investigation again. It didn't find anything. But all of that hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign. But the Republicans learned a very, very important lesson there. And that's that incessantly demonizing someone. And when you have a, a big media operation like Fox helping you, and then in addition to that, you have social media Blaring this out, uh, th that does and can and has had uh, a very adverse effect. W one of the things, by the way, and I think it's good to point this out, it's important, it's clarifying. One of the things that Fauci has been criticized for is he changed his opinion about wearing masks. In the very early days of the pandemic, uh, so we're talking February, March 2020, Fauci said the general public doesn't really need to wear masks. And he changed his mind a month or two later when evidence came in showing that masks were a, an extremely crucial way of limiting the spread of the virus, especially among people who either had no, who had the virus, but, but didn't have any uh, overt symptoms or we're just beginning to get sick, so their symptoms were very light. You know, maybe they coughed or sneezed a little bit. That that uh, those people wearing masks, that was very, very helpful. 
And so he changed his mind uh, about the mask because the facts changed. And this is one of the keynotes of this Republican attack. Fauci misled us about the mask. And I saw Fauci just the other day, by the way, the Rachel Maddow interview was fabulous. And she, in my opinion, is the single best, most erudite uh, person uh, on cable uh, news. And it's great that she's there. And a close second would be Lawrence O'Donnell. Uh, the, the two of them together are just really a powerful combination. But anyway, uh, you know, I, I, Fauci was interviewed not on Rachel Maddow, but, you know, someone else. And he said, you know, I'm a scientist. I'm guided by the facts. When the facts change, I change my mind. And I thought about one of my favorite quotes, which I often put up when people ask me, what are my favorite quotes? Uh, so, sometimes it's just a quote from uh, a, a Beatles song, like, rain, I don't mind it. That's one of my favorite quotes. But another one of my favorite quotes comes from John Maynard Keynes. He's the uh, the person who created Keynesian economics. And back in the 1930s, uh, in the early 1930s, when the United States and the world were suffering in the Great Depression, Keynes said the worst thing the government should do is spend money that it doesn't have. Because then the whole situation in the Treasury Department and in the country will, as bad as it is, it'll go from bad to worse and fall apart because then the government will be bankrupt. Well, here in the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt disagreed. He and his advisors disagreed with Keynes and they indeed spent money to help save the economy. And guess what? The United States didn't fall apart. What happened, in fact, is when more people got back to work and business started earning money again, the government got everything that they spent back in tax revenue, and that in turn fed more social programs, etc. So John Maynard Keynes, an intelligent man, to say the least, a brilliant uh, economist, at that point, changed his opinion 180 degrees and created what's known as Keynesian economics, which is it's okay for the government to spend more than it has in its treasury, uh, because when the government spends money, it leads to more income in the country. The government, therefore, will get more money in, in taxes. And that's the essence of Keynesian economics. And he was challenged by a lot of his peers and a lot of his colleagues. And, and, and here's the quote. He, at some point, he said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? <laughs> so, you know, that's what Fauci did. And this is the way human science whether it's a social science like economics or whether it's a biological science uh, like medical science, uh, that's the way science operates. It, it keeps progressing by gathering as many facts as possible, seeing what works, what doesn't work. And very often you make real progress because something you thought would work in the first place turns out not to work. So you remove that from the equation 
or just the reverse. Something you thought didn't work, turns out actually it does work well. And so you then change your, your arsenal of weaponry to fight this particular illness. So that's all Fauci was doing, and good for him. He's, he's a person of science. But that to the Republicans, anybody who has an adherence to truth and science, uh, that to Republicans is hell. It's like, you know, Harry Truman used to say, I uh, used to say to Harry Truman, give him hell, Harry, because Harry Truman liked to give the Republicans hell. And uh, he, he was once asked, um, you know, wh wh what kind of hell do you give these Republicans? And Harry Truman said, I tell the truth. And that's hell to the Republicans. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's 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 fun listening to this because the concept that research research and development uh you know and and medical knowledge scientific knowledge um the reason why we have eclipses <laughs> that knowledge and experience evolves over time and we build on it and sometimes you know we do the wrong thing. I mean, you know, the millify, the, the millihide, you know, whatever that horrible drug was that, that led to so many birth defects, you know, that was prescribed and people thought it was something that, that, you know, was, was good to use. And, and it was terrible. It was, it was toxic. It was horrible. And it, it led to, you know, a lot of terrible things. And here we're in a situation where an unknown virus is spreading through the population. And the minute it, got loose the minute it emerged in china however you know and i don't really care you know i don't need to i mean the only thing we need to know is like where it came from in terms of what can we do to stop it you know but the minute the minute we started hearing about it in january it was only a matter of time before it arrived here and boom it did i mean right away and then new york was one of the hardest hit as we learned about it, of course the facts are going to change, and you cannot have this absolutism. And I think there, you know, the methods, the Republican methods, are that there needs to be a good guy and a bad guy, and they're and they're the quote unquote good guys, and that's their message, that's that's their modus, and you know they operate from. So it serves them if the science of the pandemic evolves because they can point to it and say look these guys don't know what they're talking about <laughs> he says mass in the first month of the pandemic when the knowledge is very you know not confirmed and now a month later he says wear masks and we should continue to wear masks um of course you know experience knowledge you know all these things um we have to build on that and that's doesn't seem to be a concept they're using and and i think they're not using it because it's serving them it's keeping them in power it's keeping people paranoid and feeling like there's some sinister thing going on in the background you know that they don't they're not aware of you know i mean like paul when i when i got my second shot when i got and i had moderna by the way and i was and i went on social media and i was asking my friends you know, I'm getting Moderna, what were your effects? I mean, I just wanted to hear their experiences because some of my friends did have reactions and they did get a little sick. Nobody died, you know, <laughs> nobody ended up going to the hospital or anything, but some people were like off their feet for a few days and I just wanted to know so I would be prepared for it. And thank goodness I didn't have 
that bad of an effect on it. Um, but you know, I knew I was going to get the vaccine, and I and I knew I had to get the vaccine, and I have a feeling I'm going to get a booster because that's the way it is. You know, I don't want to be infected by this thing. I don't want this thing sitting in my cells as a time bomb to go off when I hit my 70s. You know, or or I hope if I make my 80s, you know, I I I don't want it to be. Well, you know, he passed away because you know he had COVID when he was 59, and this is this is like the long term effects of it. You know, so. Yeah, well, listen. I, uh, first of all, uh, I got Moderna too, and uh, I didn't have any ill effects at all. Because uh, you know, I, I, I mean, first of all, I was a little worried, but actually, two thirds of the people who get the vaccines have no uh, ill effects. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't even slowed down for an hour. You know, so I, you know, I was happy about that. My wife, for a couple of days, was feeling under the weather. And, and by the way, I mean, I think this is a good time to say, so it's understandable that people are not thrilled about getting vaccines, about getting something injected into you. I think people are right in general to have confidence in, in our natural biological systems. And anytime you interfere with that, there is a danger of some kind of side effect. That's why the vaccine makers are so careful to test these vaccines for months and months before they're sent out to the general public. But, but as you just said, yeah, it's, it makes perfect sense that people are wary and not thrilled about getting you know, something jabbed into them. But what is the alternative? You know, r- risking dying? In yeah. a hospital, I mean, where where you with a plastic them. tube shoved down your throat. That's right. I mean, there's no choice. By the way, let me though make them. I what I think is an important point here. I think it is uh, more than interesting, and it is very interesting just in terms of our knowledge of how the pandemic arose. But but I think in a very for a very practical, serious reason. It is important to, as best as we can, figure out how the pandemic arose. And if it did escape from a lab, it's important to know that, not because we want to demonize the Chinese again. This is this Trumpian Republican nonsense. There's a far more profound reason, and that's that there are labs around the world which have been investigating viruses, they claim that they're doing that because they want to be prepared in case uh, a, an enemy launches a biological yeah. warfare attack, right? But look, I mean, I, I haven't investigated this, so I've, I've just read a few articles. But I, I saw something which I didn't know before. I don't know if you uh, knew about this, that some people think Lyme disease escaped from some Lab here in I never heard that. I never heard yeah. that. No, I mean I'm yeah. hyper aware of Lyme disease because I'm a former Long Islander, right. you know. And we always like don't go out into the pine barrens, you know, and don't go. You see deer, stay away from the deer ticks, or don't go jogging, you know, on the nature trails in Hector State Park, you know, um, because you could, you know, a deer tick could get on you. And I just, <laughs> I had right. a friend of mine, I had a friend of mine who was so paranoid about ticks 
and this is back when I used to do bike riding and stuff, that uh, we would come back from a ride, and he was like, you know, are any ticks on me? It's like, dude, that's, you know, I would just chuckle, there's a gigantic tick on your back, you know, whatever. <laughs> it would just freak out. But yeah, there was a huge, but I've never heard, I always, I always assumed uh, Lyme disease was just something that occurred in nature, you know, and being passed around by the ticks, you know. Never, yeah. never went there. Where, have you heard that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there was a there was a very lengthy. There have been a series of articles in, in various places. And by the way, Fauci also thinks it's worthy of investigation. Here's what the current situation is, as best as I've been able to tell. The the dominant theory, and that is the theory that most scientists are now subscribe to, is indeed that it arose naturally. But one of the problems is there has not been any evidence that can be brought to bear to support that. And the kind of evidence that scientists are looking for is if the virus first emerged in a bat and then it was communicated to a person, et cetera, et cetera, that there should be more evidence of that in the months leading up to uh, the actual outbreak of the pandemic. And so far, they haven't been able to find that evidence. They haven't been able to pinpoint the place of transmission. So until that part of the puzzle is filled in, the natural occurrence of COVID-19 as an explanation for how it arose, that still remains a likely hypothesis, but still an hypothesis, not, not really a fully... Supported explanation. So, since that has not been fully supported by evidence, there is the other possibility that the virus did emerge. And this is, by the way, a problem that uh, preceded uh, the current pandemic. The, the efforts of some of these high tech labs to see to what extent they can take a virus that makes us sick and make it even worse. And they are claiming the governments that do this, including the United States, they, they need to do that because that's what some enemy might throw against us. And uh, it, it, many people think, and in fact, it's pretty much the case that uh, the, the SARS family of viruses is one of these viruses that more than one lab around the world have been working to see if they can create a worse virus and not to use as biological warfare, but to be able to be the basis for countering that. Now, Obama was so concerned about that, that he put a halt, uh, a, a temporary halt on that kind of research when he was president. And it's not clear what happened after Obama, uh, but what Fauci has said is he thinks we need to investigate that possibility also. The possibility being that uh, in that Wuhan lab, scientists were working to perfect a more deadly version of that virus because they wanted to know what they would have to combat if some enemy did that. And by the way, even though the Wuhan lab is in China, it's not just something that was controlled or the input just came from the Chinese. The U.S. did experiments in that lab also. So that's why it's a very complicated situation. 
And, and look, and, it, and it, it, but it's such a trigger moment because, first of all, it brings people to the mindset of we're living in Stephen King's novel, The Stand. Okay, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. this is Captain Trips we're fighting. That's one aspect of it, you know, which is the basis for tons of zombie and horror movies, yada yada yada. The other aspect of it is it brings about um, the, the, the racism, you know, that that if the virus came from China, all Chinese people are evil. And all these horrible things start happening, which serves nothing because, like we said at the beginning, the virus is, okay? It does what it does, and it's going to do it. It doesn't matter where it came from. It doesn't matter who it infects. I mean, I remember hearing uh, Trump saying the virus seems to be worse than Democrat-controlled states. Therefore, if you had voted... If you had voted the Democrats in, and you know, that that means that the virus is going to get you. I mean, that's that's the sort of the ludicrous things that I was hearing, you know, when when COVID nineteen emerged back in February and March of uh, twenty nineteen, uh, you know, or was it twenty twenty? See, I'm messing up my years here, um, you know, and and that's just ludicrous, you know, just absolutely ludicrous, um, because the point is, if there's going to be any reaction to a virus we need to figure out what we need to do to not die and not pass it on to other people, especially people who are medically fragile and at risk. You know, that's really the number one priority and it gets lost in, 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 um, with all this other noise, you know, that's that, that happens. Yeah, well, I agree completely. I mean, the, the racism against Asians is outrageous and that it should be, uh, clamped down on uh, and uh, people who, who do these kinds of things who, who, who attack Asian people because the, the, the attackers in some misguided sense are blaming them for the pandemic or whatever their problem is, those people you know, are, are criminals and they should be dealt with as harshly as possible, the, the, the vicious attackers. So I agree with you about that completely. But uh, Still, if there's any possibility that the virus did emerge from a lab, that would be good to know because maybe we, sh we should shut down these labs. Yeah. And it's not just in China. It's right here in the United States, the lab yeah. on Plum Island. You know, a lot of people have died from uh, Lyme disease. Um, and again, I, I don't really know anything more than what I just told you about that. I've read it in a couple of articles. But, you know... Look, it is true, obviously, if you look at human history, that epidemics and pandemics did not arise in the 20th century with the creation of labs to investigate uh, viruses and bacteria and how they could be used uh, in germ warfare. Uh, plagues have been with us apropos the Black Plague and the bubonic mm -hmm. plague throughout history. So. Absolutely, that's the case, and uh, everyone thinks it's still much more likely that this arose naturally, and absolutely you're right that our focus has to be now on stopping this and squelching it and getting it out of our system and out of our world as best as possible. But looking to the future, if there's any chance that it, this did emerge from a lab accidentally, then I think it would be a good idea 
in terms of protecting us in the future to make sure these labs don't do this kind of thing anymore. Yeah, and and also I guess it, it also depends on like who's running the lab and is the lab. I mean, I believe this just happened with the gas pipeline, you know, the oil pipeline. Um, is the lab being run by a group of uh, hedge funds managers, you know, or you know, um, you know, that are like just trying to get the most out of their investment? You know, are they cutting back on protocols and things like that? Uh, you know, sometimes capitalism and scientific research doesn't mix so well. Um, I have to tell everybody that it is 12 o'clock and you are listening to Lunch on Thursday without Bill McNulty. Captain Phil is filling in with my guest, Paul Levinson. And you are also listening to WUSB Stony Brook. Paul, we never gave your credits at the start of the uh, show. Uh, let people know where to find you and and your current as a science fiction writer and as a uh, Fordham uh, University per- professor. Give us your credentials. Let us know uh, what you're doing and, and what's happening in, in the life of Paul Evanson. Well, that's why I've stayed around so long in the desperate hope that you would call upon me. To, uh... <laughs> <laughs> all right, so here we go. First of all, I mentioned social media. You can find me at Paul Lev, P-A-U-L-L-E-V, on Twitter. I'm a very friendly guy. I'll almost definitely follow you back if you follow me. So uh, I'll be happy to uh, see you on Twitter. I'm on Facebook under my name, Paul Levinson. Uh, so you can follow me there. I think I, I mentioned earlier, earlier Instagram, um, at Paul Levins, P-A-U-L-L-E-V-I-N-S. Um, I also have my own podcast called Light On, Light Through, where I will put a, uh, a recording of this uh, show up in a few days. So uh, some of you who are, who are listening to this right now might be listening to it uh, a few days from now uh, on my podcast. And uh, that's L-I-G-H-T-O-N-L-I-G-H-T-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com. Light on, light through dot com, my podcast. Um, if you search for my name on Amazon, you'll find uh, links and pictures and reviews. Not all of them good, but uh, some of them good <laughs> of all of my uh, books and nonfiction books, my novels and so on. I, I, I mentioned earlier, my first published novel is called The Silk Code. It won the Locus Award for the best first science fiction novel of 1999. I went on to write two other novels. And I also uh, wrote a novelette called The Chronology Protection Case with the same character, Dr. Phil D'Amato, a a filmmaker in California uh, by the name of Jay Kensinger, uh, actually made a little movie. uh, And by the way, Phil, you'd love this, not only because you and Phil D'Amato have the same first name, but you'd love it because of your Long Island and Icon pedigree. The first place that movie was shown was Icon in 2002. And uh, I, I miss Icon so much, Paul. Yeah, I, I miss it so much. Me too. And then, and then we uh, did a, uh, a new uh, coda or ending to the uh, short film, Making It a Minute or Two 
longer, back in 2012, 2013. So that little movie is up on Amazon Prime. And getting back to my podcast, also in the next week or so, you'll uh, uh, hear an interview that I'm going to be doing with Jay Kensinger about how he made the movie and what it's like to take something that's written uh, in the form of a novelette and turn it into a short film. By the way, uh, Jay will be a guest in a class I'm currently teaching through Zoom uh, at Fort Fordham University in their summer session called Science Fiction from Page to Screen. So Jay will be my guest this month. As long as I'm talking about that uh, class, which I'm really loving, I, I put it together. This is the first time I've taught this class. Uh, my guest in July will be none other than Rufus Sewell. And we're going to be talking about the man in the high castle. Wow. And the differences between Philip K. Dick's novel and the Amazon Prime series. And uh, anyone who's read the novel and seen the series, uh, I'm not giving anything away. Rufus Sewell's character, John Smith, who was just fabulous uh, in the uh, Amazon Prime series, didn't even exist. He wasn't part of Philip K. Dick's original novel. And one of the things we're going to be talking about, just to give you a little teaser on that, because that eventually, uh, that interview will eventually uh, be on our podcast too. Uh, and on YouTube, one of the things we're going to be talking about, and I'm not sure, Phil, if you and I talked about this um, already, the, uh, after the series concluded, I wrote a lengthy review, and again, not to give too much away, but I said the very ending of the Amazon Prime series presented a picture of John Smith, Rufus Sewell's character, that was inconsistent with what the whole earlier year or two of the series had been showing us about John Smith. And I said, I don't know why they did that. And so Rufus Sewell contacted me after I published the review and he said, hey, Paul, thanks so much. <laughs> uh, you, you and I are probably the only people who think that, but I had the same feeling. And uh, so it's, it, it should be a fun interview. Getting back to Phil D'Amato, see, you, I, I feel you're probably sorry you asked me uh, to talk about this. I'll talk for another two hours about it. But getting back. No, I wanted to make sure we got your credits on there. This is fascinating stuff. And, and I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with The Man in the High ca Castle, Philip K. Dick, you know, and in his work. And speaking of the paranoia about, you know, what we've just been talking about with Fauci and the virus and this and that, it's an absolute perfect segue <laughs> to talk yes, about the late Philip K. Dick. Yeah. He would have had a field day with what's going on. He, he, but, I, you know, I, it's funny you said that, Paul, because I just recorded an interview with the band Evership, and mm -hmm. somehow we got on to the subject of Philip K. Dick, and, and I think one of the things um, we touched upon, because the the, the, the composer uh, you know, of, of this interview, you know, the composer of the music we were talking about, is very literate, and ve you know, very much in, into uh, reading and writing, and I said to him, can you imagine if Philip K. Dick had lived through this <laughs> the last couple of years? You know, I think he would. I think you're right. He would have had a field day, correct? Absolutely. There's something, by the way, about the name Phil, because, you know, <laughs> not only is it your name, uh, Philip K. Dick's name, Phil D'Amato, my, my character uh, that I've been talking about, but there's another Phil 
Phil Oaks, who uh, in many ways, in my view, uh, he, he was a singer-songwriter, yep. wrote some great stuff. I mean, like The Crucifixion, uh, just a few months after JFK was killed. And uh, I still think it's the best song written about the Kennedy assassination. Uh, a close second is the Bob Dylan song, Murder Most Foul, oh, which goodness. he just came out with last year, a very powerful song. But anyway, tragically, Phil Oaks took his own life uh, back in the 1970s. And I often think it's a shame that he didn't live to see some of this. Uh, and, um, you know, he originally, he, for example, one of his great songs, you know, here's to the state of Mississippi. So, and, and then he updated it, here's to the state of Richard Nixon. Mm. So God knows what Phil Oaks would have to say about Donald Trump. But I'm, yeah. And I'm so glad you brought up Phil Oaks because Phil Oaks' music, um, uh, the, the actual host of the show, Bill McNulty, plays his music all the time. Ah. Uh, it talks about him all the time, so it's like we're we're we have we are channeling the spirit of Bill McNulty right now by bringing this up. Listen, my wife and I love Phil Oaks, and uh, you know one of the things I do, uh, you know, I, I haven't mentioned it because it's just for fun. You know, I put together playlists, uh, you know, on on Spotify, and so I recently created a, pay, a, pay, a playlist called Uptown, Downtown, and Nearby Places. And, uh, you know, some of the songs are obvious choices, Uptown Girl, mm -hmm. or Let's Go Downtown, where all the lights are, or they say the neon lights are yep. bright. But, but I, I realized that I just added this, that Phil Oaks' song, Take From California, explicitly mentions New York. You know, he's, he's writing a song from California, New York City is exploding, and da-da-da-da-da. And uh, that was when he moved out to California. And he was a fabulous lyricist. He, he, he had a beautiful voice. And one of the things that I still can't stand him to this very day, uh, this strikes me as a good opportunity to vent about yet someone else. Not a Republican, as far as I know. But th there is a critic by the name of Robert Criscow, who was a critic for The Voice, I don't know, going way back to the 19... 70s and i first got to know him because back then he came out with a savage and in my view ignorant review of paul mccartney's second album uh ram and uh so i wrote a letter to the village voice saying you know I, what's the matter with this guy chris guy that you have writing these reviews he doesn't get what's going on he, he missed a lot of the great elements of McCartney's music. And the Village Voice, the editor, Diane Fisher, surprised me by sending me a check for $75 and publishing my letter as an article in the Village Voice. So in a way, I should be grateful to Robert Criscow because he was responsible for my first publication and got me started on that nefarious life of writing. But... The other point I wanted to mention is in addition to uh, uh, savaging Paul McCartney, Robert Criscow also attacked Phil Oaks and, and basically totally ignoring his lyrics, totally ignoring the beauty of his voice and the haunting melodies that he wrote and basically attacking his guitar playing. And, you know, Phil Oaks basically strummed the guitar. He was not, he never tried to be a professional guitarist. 
he, he was like a folk singing guitarist. So, you know, attacking him for the way he played guitar shows a complete ignorance of what Phil Oaks was doing. So, uh, so I've always thought that Phil Oaks did not receive as much credit as he deserved. And yeah, there's no doubt that in the world that we're living in, and I realized this in the 1980s when Reagan was president, that it's too bad Phil Oaks isn't around. And, and it's certainly that way uh, here in the 2020s. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit, um, but I, I really appreciate you bringing up Phil Oaks and Ram. Um, a, because of course, of for Bill, you know, and and it's a and it's and it's a shout out and a and a uh, tribute to him that we're talking uh, about that. But at the same time, McCartney's second album, um, because we have Scotty O and the Beatles show coming up today at three o'clock, uh, you know, Thursdays at three, and and Scott has been talking about that album, and there's been there's actually uh, and also. Uh, uh, a a musician friend of mine has just released a tribute album to Ram uh, as well, so it's it's kind of like very timely that that you yeah you're you're touching all these different things, but I don't want to leave the I don't want you to leave the air until we talk about um, the voter suppression efforts that are going on um, right now in the Republican Party and it seemingly inability for um, the Senate to do anything to stop it. Um, not only did they shoot down this this voting you know legislation, this new voting legislation, uh, Mitch McConnell isn't going to even renew uh, the John Lewis, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, legislation, and that was something that I believe um, the Democrats were counting on that they were going to bring that back and, and just do it. And, and and Mitch says, "No, we don't need to do that." And for some reason it seems like mitch mcconnell is still in charge of the senate even though he's not um what have you say what what do you say about to that uh paul it's an extremely unfortunate and dangerous situation as as i'm sure all of uh, our listeners know that the filibuster is not something that's in the constitution it's a senate rule that can be abolished changed Anytime the Senate wants to do that. And that is why Mitch McConnell has so much power. Because you would think that in the, quote, greatest deliberative body in the world, which is what the Senate purports to be, you would think that in a body like that, hey, here's a bright idea, majority rules, right? So whichever party is in the majority, they get to have a little more power than the party that's not in the majority. So right now, obviously, as I'm sure everyone knows, there are 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans in the Senate. Uh, our founding fathers saw that as a possibility. They didn't know there'd be 100 senators, of course. The country was much smaller. But because there were two senators for every state, they saw the possibility that there could be an even split between, uh, even though they didn't even know that there would be political parties per se, they foresaw that there could be a situation on a particular issue in which there could be an even split pro 
pass this as a law, Khan, don't pass this as a law. And so they said the vice president then, who sits as president of the Senate, the vice president shall have the power to break that time. That's a sensible thing. That's the way the Senate and the United States operated for decades and decades and a very long time. And, you know, I, I'm not going to go into the history of how the filibuster arose in the first place. But I remember when I first became aware of it as a kid, I remember thinking, what, what's this? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, people can get up and talk, but eventually the party that has the majority should be able to say, all right, we move that there be no further discussion. And if 51 senators want that to happen, or 50 senators plus you have a vice president that wants that to happen, then there will be no further discussion, and then you vote. I mean, that's a, that's a very simple, obvious process, and it works. And yet, you know, for a variety of reasons, people, senators thought it would be better to make it even more difficult to get things done in the Senate. And that's why we have all of these crucially important pieces of legislation just piling up. Uh, we, we have the George Floyd Act. Yeah. For God's sakes, people are being murdered. African-American women and men, usually men, but always African-American, are being murdered by police. And, and thank goodness, finally, we see some justice being done in Minneapolis with, with the guilty verdict for former officers Chauvin. But we need to reform the laws and how they regulate what police can and can't do. The, the two voting rights act, the, the John Lewis act, and then the, the, the larger act, both of those are crucial. Why? Because, you know, not to make too much of this metaphor, democracy itself is being murdered by these states that are setting up all of these preposterous regulations designed to keep people away from the polls. And we all know what kind of people, the kind of people that vote Democratic. So that's usually African-Americans. By the way, African-Americans do not 100% vote Democratic, but, you know, a large percentage of African-Americans do. So the Republicans say, hey, all right, let's see if we can come up with some ridiculous things that uh, we're not being discriminatory. Because everyone will have to do this, but, but they are designed to especially make it more difficult for African Americans to vote. So those two. Because, because African Americans don't have the same access to, let's, let's, well, well, you know, let's say you need a driver's license to vote. Right. That's well, African Americans, you know, in, 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 in urban centers tend to use public transportation and don't own cars. That's so right. they don't have a, so they need a, or I need some other sort of ID in order to vote. Um, but the only way you can get an ID is if you get it at the DMV, and the DMV in some cases um, is 200 miles away. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, they have the interesting sort of like uh, paradox of uh, you, you got to uh, get to uh, a DMV to get a, a driver's license, but uh, you have to drive to get there. So, you know, uh, you know, Paul. We had, we had something similar happen with my son because my my son is 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 multiply handicapped, 
and and he's an adult now. He's 23 years old. He's in a group home near where we live, and he needed an ID. Um, I think it was to get him on uh, social security disability or some other thing to get an ID. And we had to bring him physically to the DMV (laughs) to get this ID and to do that. And it wasn't a hardship for us because we have resources, (laughs) you know, but, and we had the time to do this, but somebody who's working and if you're poor and you have multiple jobs, how are you supposed to get there? Are you supposed to take a day off from work? You can't afford to take a day off from work, you know? To get this simple paperwork done, it's it's and it, yeah, it was it was like nonsense to get him this ID that we didn't think he needed because he's never going to drive. Um, but yeah, I, you know, and and it was just hoop after hoop after hoop that we had to jump through, and this is just for simple stuff for him being done by two adults who have resources, and it still was a huge hassle. I can't imagine someone who's working two or three jobs if you know if if they're economically unstable. They don't have their own transportation and, and having to deal with this just to vote. And in most cases, they would say it's not worth it. <laughs> no, it, it's not worth the trouble. You know. That's right. And, and, you know, along those lines. So suddenly now mail in voting, uh, that uh, is something that's a danger to the voting process. And, and it turns out that historically, Republicans have used mail in voting more than Democrats. But in the past election, yeah, because of COVID, there was a huge increase in mail-in voting. There, there was less than 1% of any voter fraud or attempted voter fraud. I mean, it was negligible. So the process worked very well, even though we had a complete incompetence as the postmaster general appointed by Trump. He did what he could to, uh, to handicap the the postal service right before the election but it didn't work and the postal service worked very well in terms of enabling people to vote so this is what republicans are going after look it's so bad that as i'm sure you also probably know even these two voting rights acts don't address another big threat to the democratic with a small d voting process and that's what happens after the votes are cast? Because now there are several states where, believe it or not, they think that you don't just count the votes. You, you have to then go to courts and make sure that the, the counts are verified and all kinds of things know what they're trying to do, you know, in Arizona with the recount. So that jeopardizes the electoral process also because you can have uh, you know, a Democrat winning in a state. This is what Republicans are afraid of. And so they want to have the option of making it even easier than it is now for a judge to overturn the results of that election. You, you, technically, that can happen now, but it takes an enormous amount of work. Judges regularly throw that those claims out of court, which is what happened with every single claim, I think like out of 56 Court cases, 55 were thrown out of court. One of them was like a very minor thing. Someone, a poll worker was rude to somebody else. It didn't affect the vote count. But that's what Trump tried to do after he lost the election. So we need actually a third Voting Rights Act. But as you correctly said, with the filibuster uh, and, and Mitch McConnell, none of this is getting through. 
And so again, we come back, you know, and we haven't mentioned him yet, but you hear it all over, Joe Manchin. Yes, but, yes. And, and it seems like Joe Manchin, while, I mean, you know, I, I listened to a, a great debate on, on Joe Manchin uh, on MSNBC uh, a couple of days ago with a couple of talking heads, and you've, you've, you've uh, had your experience in the talking head box, you know, on various news channels. Um the thing they came they came down with was like Joe is doing this to wield power and 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 to do this. It, it seems like he's he's playing games with this. I they didn't believe there was any risk of him flipping and becoming a Republican and throwing it to uh, the Republicans because if he did that, then Mitch would just take over and he would be nobody again. You know, so he he has power right now, and it seems to be you know enjoying it the problem is while he's doing this maybe you know to impress the people in west virginia he's doing this to impress his, his base or whatever the people on the other side are serious and they and there are some people in congress who believe or it seems to me they believe that the election was stolen they seem to believe the big lie there are people on the other side who are who are ready to, to i think start another insurrection if the vote doesn't go their way, and this isn't so they can reinstall Trump, this is so they can bring all this to bear uh, election uh, during the election of 2022 and 2024. So I feel like this is the warm-up act, you know, and they're just trotting out all these tools. And when it really comes to bear in 2024, I think mostly, is where they'll really cut loose on this. And we might, I mean... Correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but we might lose the country in 2024. When I say lose the country, it's like we might install an autocrat instead of a president in 2024. You're not wrong at all. That's what would have happened had Trump won in 2020. Uh, and I think, by the way, 2022 is just as important as 2024, because if we can, by any chance, get a majority of 60 Democrats in the Senate and hold the House, then Joe Manchin uh, does not is not that relevant anymore because we don't need to do away with the filibuster. And, I, I feel and, like he's playing games though, and and, and 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 but this this isn't a game. This is serious stuff here. It's very serious stuff. Look, I don't know Joe Manchin, and uh, you know I'll say on his behalf that he has voted the right way on a lot of important issues. He voted to impeach Trump. Uh, he, he, he sided with Democrats m many, many more times than he did not. So he is a Democrat. He does come from a very conservative state, by a, a state in which Trump won by yep. a huge margin. Yep. So look, I, you know, I, I think we have to take that into account. And... I don't agree with him that somehow the filibuster is a sacred thing and the Senate needs that. I think he's wrong. I wish I could sit down and talk to him. I know other people have done that. They've tried to do that. Uh, so I, I agree with you, Phil, though. I don't think there's any danger that he's going to jump to the Republican Party because yeah. you're right. As a Republican, he just becomes actually a progressive Republican and if anything, he'll have 
an unfavorable position. You become Mitt Romney. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. How much they love Mitt Romney right now. <laughs> that's, that's right. By the way, speaking of... Well, Liz which, Cheney. You know, Liz Cheney. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Who would have predicted a few years ago that we would be so, speaking so positively about Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney? It is it is hard. I I do believe Mitt Romney actually I believe Mitt Romney believes in what he believes in. I believe Mitt Romney is a man of faith. I honestly, you know I mean, I'm 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 an atheist myself, but I believe that he respect you you know what I'm saying? I believe that he believes what he believes in, and I don't think he's just, you know, doing lip service to it. I don't think he's a hypocrite. Um and to give him credit, Joe, he did come up in the state of Massachusetts with yeah. what became nationally the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. That, that was, you know, he and the people working for him in Massachusetts figured that out. So, you know, he, he deserves credit for that. But yeah. getting back to Joe Manchin, I, so I, I think we, we have to try to refrain from demonizing him. We have to figure out a way. I think he's a rational person. And... I, I just can only hope that he'll see the light and see the need for getting some of these bills passed into law. Uh, and if it's necessary to do away with the filibuster to do that, because, you know, I, you know, if, if you think about, uh, you know, I mentioned FDR before, you know, FDR got into office. We, we faced a horrible, depression you know nazi germany was building up everybody could see what was coming there and roosevelt was able to do what he did by not being hostage to history by being willing to try new things and uh see what happened because anything would was better than the united states stagnating in the in the situation that it was in in the 1930s and this is what Joe Biden is facing now. They're very different challenges, but they amount to the same thing. I mean, the, the, uh, you know, we haven't even talked about the environment. That's yeah. a huge challenge. We haven't talked about infrastructure. Yeah. That's a huge challenge. So there are so many things. And I, I think that someone needs to somehow reach Joe Manchin that, look, you know, it, let's give it a little more time. Maybe you can convince enough Republicans, but everyone recognizes he's not going to get 10 Republicans to join him. So if that's the case, how else are we going to get these laws enacted? We have to do away with the filibuster because not everything can be a reconciliation, which is the technical term for strictly financial matters. And everyone has to realize that the party line for the Republican minority, and they and, and they're a temporary minority. <laughs> they have they have huge muscles. They have a huge bully pulpit. They have a huge control over conservative media. Uh, their their voices get heard everywhere. Uh, I mean, I, I don't. I they still control AM radio. I think. Um, um, you know, we may only have the Democrats may only have till twenty twenty two to get anything done, and it seems like. It seems like the Democrats are Apollo Creed in the Rocky movie. <laughs> and they're dancing around with the American flag shorts on and they're, you know, you know doing doing whatever. And the Republicans 
you know, they, they're doing a dance around Rocky, and then at some point, Rocky's going to connect to Apollo's chin. <laughs> and that yeah. first punch where Apollo realizes Rocky's in this for real. <laughs> and Rocky's, I'm like flipping the, the script here, that Rocky is the hero, you know. But, you know, that first time when, 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 when he hits him, I feel like that's going to happen in 2022. I feel like we're, we're going to be pulling ourselves off the mat on election night in 2022 saying, I didn't see that coming. These guys are serious. And these guys are serious. They want to be in power and they will do anything to be in power. They will take away people's voting rights. They will make insane viral videos shooting a camera through um, AOC's mail slot in her congressional office. They'll, they'll, uh, they'll encourage um, their constituents to attack the United States Capitol. Anything to be in power. The one thing they don't have, Paul, is legislation. They, they, they have nothing to show. The one thing they have to show is that they want to be against Joe Biden. Before that, they wanted to be against Barack Obama. That's not a position. They're not giving me any choices. They're just like, we're going to do everything in our power to be against him. There's, there is no, this is what we think. This is, you know, there's nothing out there. It's just empty. And when they return to power, it's going to be the same old. It's going to be massive tax cuts for corporations and massive cuts in social services. Oh, and by the way, um, the president is going to be able to char- you know, to, to keep his business and make tons of money off of government contracts being funneled into his private business. <laughs> well, listen, let, let me give you an optimistic... Please, I need it. Because, <laughs> I need it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, cause I'm, I'm an incurable optimist, but I was right that Biden would be elected president. A lot of people are saying I was crazy, and Biden is now president. I, I do think there are grounds for optimism, and here's what I see as a real possibility of happening. I think that Americans, or a majority of Americans, correctly credit Biden with really tamping down the pandemic here. You know, and, and look, if you look at it logically, it's true that the vaccines, the, the, the you know, Operation Warp Speed was a Trump project. He does deserve credit for that, much as I hate to say it. But it was Biden who figured out not only how to make the vaccines, uh, develop them as quickly as possible, but get them out to the American people as quickly as possible. And I think that every single person who has received the vaccine is going to have a, a level of gratitude for what Biden did uh, and what the Democrats did. Secondly, I think we are finally beginning to see some progress on some of these issues, even without the legislation. So again, I want to get back to Chauvin being found guilty. He was found guilty of murder. That is a major, major development. We've come a long way since we saw Rodney King savagely beaten to within an inch of his life in the early 1990s on on a primitive video. And and those police were found not guilty uh, in in the assault trial that they were subject to. They were convicted on some kind of federal hate crime uh, charges. But over and over again, Errol Garner's murderers he was also choked to death. Those cops, they were never 
uh, found guilty in the court of law. They, they were suspended in one or two cases fired. So Chauvin and that, that guilty verdict represents a very important step forward. And I think uh, the American people, that is those American people who are decent, they, they may not be African-American, but they're decent enough to see that we have to do something about these murderous cops. They are going to vote Democratic. And I think that African-Americans, despite what the Republicans are trying to do, because those laws will be challenged in court, even if we don't pass this legislation on a national level. So I think a lot of those laws are going to be struck down. Why should you need a driver's license? Indeed, what does one thing have to do with another? You have a right to vote as an American citizen, not because you learned how to drive a car. I've so never been asked to show my driver's license to vote. I just uh, voted in the local school board election. Uh, I, what was it, last month or whatever it was? That's right. And we just showed up, signed my name, you know, and that was that. That's right. So I think we should keep the pressure up relentlessly. We should challenge the Republicans at every step. We should keep the pressure on Joe Manchin. We should work very hard to have the Senate do away with the filibuster. Maybe they can limit it in some way so we can get some of the legislation passed that way. But I'm going to predict that in the year 2022, the Republicans are going to be routed in the elections in the House of representatives for representatives in the House of Representatives and for people in the Senate. Look, I was delighted, I'm sure you were, to, to see yesterday that uh, Val Deming, uh, a former prosecutor from Orlando, Florida, a, a Brent member, she was part of the impeachment committee in the House of Representatives. She's challenging Marco Rubio yeah. in, in Florida. I think she's going to beat Marco Rubio. Oh, please, please, let it be true. Yeah. Let it be true. <laughs> That's right. Uh, boy, well, I'd be happy on that day. You know, and so, but there are other people around the country who are challenging Republicans. Yes. There are a lot of Republican Senate seats that are up in 2022. One of the problems we had in 2020 is there weren't that many seats that were up in the right states and so on. So, I, I, listen, we still have a long way to go to 2022, but I'm going to say here on June 10th, 2021, that uh, in November of 2022, and hey, I'll be happy to come back on any one of your many shows so to see whether I'm right or wrong, but I, I, I do think we're in an upswing. And again, it gets back to the FDR analogy. I, I think we're in the equivalent in the equivalent of 1933, early 1934, in FDR's administration. The Republicans were giving him a lot of grief. The courts were striking down his New Deal uh, legislation. People were worried that you know that basically the United States was going to die in the 1930s because what happened is this Great Depression led to. Uh, uh, horrible dictators like Hitler and Mussolini getting power in other countries. And yet, Roosevelt was able to turn that around in the United States because he, he made enough progress that in the 1934 election, there were more Democrats elected. And then he was elected back in office in 1936. And then he became, you know, unbeatable. So 
I think with the very early stages in the Biden administration and the Democratic with a capital D and a small D resurgence, but I think that resurgence will succeed. I, I hope so. And I will have you back on and we will uh, quote you on this and we will hold you to it. And if a dark age happens and we won't have to go underground, then we're all going to come and live with you up in Cape Cod and watch the sunset. So hopefully before the I mean, hopefully before the stormtroopers come, you know, <laughs> yeah. where do they say? Where do they say V for Vendetta? Creedy's Creedy's thugs put him in black bags, you know, <laughs> remember in V for Vendetta. So, yeah, hopefully that won't be uh, where where this ends up. By the way, Bernie's doing pretty well, also, right? Bernie, you know, uh, you know Bernie is is kind of amazing, and and it it's I I feel bad because I feel like we're not going to see him again in terms of running for president. Um, if you know if Biden is still up, I'm sure Biden's going to want to run in 2024. If he's successful, um, you know, and 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 the thing I wanted to mention before when you were talking was the things that Biden is proposing are enormously popular to people on both sides of, of the issues. They're popular with red, traditionally red voters, and they're popular with blue voters. People want infrastructure reform. They want r- tunnels and bridges and roads repaired. And guess what? Who are we going to get to build those roads and tunnels and bridges? And that would be Americans who need jobs. So it's it seems like a, a no-brainer. I don't understand how anybody could be against stuff like that. And... I mean, it you know, it's it just seems to me that we have we have, we are at a moment here. We're at a moment here where you can really uh, begin to change things for the positive. And I think we're also at a moment when we learned a lot about um, through the pandemic, where maybe we don't need to commute, you know, <laughs> to work anymore. There's maybe a lot of businesses out there that we can be telecommuting. Maybe we do really need to be serious about you know, broadband for the entire country, for all areas of the country, so people can go to work, but still, you know, by by not driving in. I mean, I had a huge discussion um, about this with um, Leslie Mandoki, you know, uh, from Germany, and, this, and he said, this is, this is a moment to change. And when I had him on at the beginning of the pandemic, I said to Leslie, I haven't bought a, gas, a tank of gas in two months. <laughs> That's how much driving I was doing, you know? I love it. I have right. I haven't. I haven't brought my car in for uh, yeah. You know, you know, usual checkup. You know, because the miles are just not there. But I'm glad you said that, though. By the way, because I don't know if you know this, though. But my wife Tina and I founded a company. Uh, I came up with the name for it, Connected Education, mm-hmm. or Connect Ed, for short. Back in the 1980s, we were offering online courses for academic credit starting with the New School for Social Research. We had a master's program. It was done totally remotely, and we didn't have video. There was no Zoom. It was done completely through asynchronous text. But we realized back then the great advantages of distance education. We had students from, I don't know, like 38 states around the country, uh, 22 countries around the world. I remember we had a guy sign on from Singapore, a woman signed off from Japan and were actually taking courses with us. It was very primitive, but it was very, very instructive. And one of the things I've learned as a professor teaching uh, courses uh, through Zoom before them, including right now, and I mentioned earlier my class science fiction from page to screen that I'm currently teaching, 
I'm also teaching two other classes online this summer. There are enormous advantages in distance education. W one advantage, by the way, is that, uh, you know, it's very easy when you're teaching a class via Zoom. There's also a system called Panopto, which basically records and provides a transcript to your class. Wow. So if a student misses a class, they can get the whole class. Or if they have trouble paying attention during during a Zoom class because they're listening to WUSB, that's <laughs> it's right. very distracting. But they can that's go back right. yet, yeah, or it's it's like a whole study aid there. Mm -hmm. That's right, exactly right. And there's no such thing as a snow day, you know. Well, let's not get crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but I mean, so, but that is you, you know that comes under the category as you were getting at. You know, it's an ironic way of putting it, but benefits of the pandemic, which obviously yeah. it sounds almost stupid to say it that way. But what we're talking about are unintended benefits, benefits mm -hmm. that we realized as we were coping with the pandemic. And, uh, and, and distance education is a major one of those. Well, I, I, I want to tell you, and I tell you, Paul, there's, I mean, I learned from from the pandemic that I don't have to go grocery shopping anymore. I can make an order online and I can drive to the store and pick it up. And the great benefit of that is a human being is picking the order for me. So I'm not doing this, you know, this ridiculous scan your own groceries nonsense, you know, <laughs> in the store where I all of a sudden I'm an employee and I'm scanning my own stuff. Somebody comes out. I try to I, I always try to tip them. Sometimes they're not allowed to take a tip, but I always try to give them a tip. And now I'm not wandering around the store, <laughs> you know, and, yeah, I, and I've learned that I enjoy not wandering around the store looking for bananas, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well me, me too. But I have to say, my grandma, Sarah, may she rest in peace. She wouldn't be happy with that <laughs> because she was like the expert. She would go to like a fruit stand and like would, would pick up a grapefruit and just, squeeze it is too strong a word. She would just like almost like touch it and oh no not quite ripe enough and then she'd go uh, uh, hey, hey grandma shall i get these apples let me see and she'd go over she wouldn't really squeeze the apple she somehow like almost like hold it up to the white you know and, uh, oh yeah this is good this is good apple so you know you can't do that if you shop uh food remotely well that's true uh you know but but and and to chime in with Bill a little bit, you know, um, the whole I thing with students and masks and which is a controversy in New York State right now. Should the rest of the year be masked or maskless? I think puts out two two things. We only have twelve minutes left, by the way. It puts out two ideas. Um, the first idea is if there's going to be remote learning in a public school setting. Yes, it takes out the social aspect of you being in a school and seeing your friends and playing basketball, you know, or, or having lunch in the cafeteria. And, and I get that and I understand that. But at the same time, it also removes the fact that in biology class, the guy sitting behind me isn't kicking me my chair or making comments or calling me stupid names while I'm trying to learn something. So if you know, you know what I'm saying. So it takes yeah. away that aspect of it and puts the focus on the actual content of the classes, and not that, you know, people are passing notes in class, people are, whatever. And and I know this is a minor quibble, 
But every time I hear that the children are suffering because they need to be back in school, it's like, well, Paul, I suffered in school. <laughs> I actually <laughs> suffered in school, you know, and I'm, I'm sure other stu- other kids suffered in school as well, and maybe they are flourishing, you know, and that's just, you know, but I completely understand the social aspects of it. And in terms of masks, because now it's very hot and everyone's saying it's too hot to be in school and have the students wear a mask, they can't learn, they can't breathe. Which says to me, in the age of global warming, we're not going to be able to move the moon, <laughs> no matter what Louis Gohmert says. Why aren't our public schools air-conditioned? Yeah, good, the good superintendent's thought. sitting in an air-conditioned office. The principal of the school, odds are, is sitting in an air-conditioned office. Why not Johnny and Mary and, and, and Sally? Can't they be comfortable in a classroom? I understand it costs money, okay, but maybe that's another thing that's been laid bare by the pandemic that maybe we need to like improve the infrastructure of our schools buildings you know and 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 keep and and i mean you know keep keep the air clean and cool and safe in a learning environment and that's something that's being skipped over in these protests there's been actual protests um for no masking in school so no that's a very very good point and i would even add this which supports what you're saying but from a slightly different perspective the idea that it's necessary for kids to go to school because that's how they become socialized and in terms of what you were saying actually i you know from what i recollect as a student uh being in a classroom as a kid is not the way you become socialized because you're sitting there basically you can't open your mouth I used to have to bring home report cards. You know, Paul is very bright, but he lacks self-control. He needs to learn not to talk to his neighbor. So, you know, and yeah, then, Paul, uh, what are you going to stop? Exactly. <laughs> like uh, now, every kid who got that, they're probably spending God knows how much money on a shrink because they need to learn how to communicate. You know, basically, yeah. Excuse me, when a kid asked me a question, I thought it'd be a good idea to answer that question. You know, right, I communicate with my neighbors. So, you know, I mean, it, you can make a lot of fun of it, but there is, a, you know, a legitimate grievance there. And I, I think the best way to become socialized is to be out in the world, be out there, you know, in the playground, wherever you are. Uh, another way of putting it is don't mistake being in school for real life, because it's not. It, oh. It's a very artificial contrivance. Uh, you know, and I think it was Mark Twain who said, never let going to school get in the way of your getting a good education. I mean, and- I, I'm sure I'm sure it's 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 been terrible for the head cheerleader and the quarterback of the football team. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know yeah. but what about the guy who just wants to learn about, you know, the quadratic equation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that's true. I was very lucky, by the way. Uh, I, I, you know, this is like maybe the first time on radio. I want to give a shout out to uh, two guys. I don't even remember their first name. One was named Medina, and the other was named Miniachi. I think Miniachi's first name was Sal. I'm not sure what Medina's first name was. Why am I mentioning this? Because I, I remember very, very clearly. I was, I'm walking to my high school. Uh, as a sophomore 
And, and some kids started picking on me. Imagine that. Why do they want to pick on a nice guy like me? And these two tough, we used to call them rocks in those days. So they had their hair slicked back. They came over and they pushed away the kids who were bothering me. And I said, hey, thanks. I really appreciate that. And they said, no, no problem. That's what we like to do. You know, we like to protect people. So thank you, Miniachi and Medina. Believe it or not, I think I had Miniachi's daughter or granddaughter. No. My class of four. And yeah, that's 15, 20 years ago. Oh, that's hysterical. But, uh, oh, I yeah. love it. I love yeah. it. <laughs> so you're right. School, look, for, I, I'm not against kids going to school. But, but, but for oh, no, but I, like, I, 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 I don't, I think it's being portrayed as like the kids have been like tortured, you know, and, and, and I'm like, well, okay, maybe they're tortured because they're at home with mom, you know, because when I was home with my mom, it was kind of torturous, you know, <laughs> so, but at the same time, those who truly are trying to learn something in, in, in school, um, maybe had the moment where they can sit on zoom with the teacher and, and get it in without someone throwing a spitball at their head at the same time. <laughs> I just have a real awesome example of watching my mom, as you say. Yeah. So, so basically some guy comes over the house, I don't know, some kind of repairman, and basically comes into the house and my mother is screaming and yelling at me. I was a little kid for some reason. I don't know what I did wrong. I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. But my mother screamed and yelling at me. The worker looks at me and quietly says, I remember how good I felt when I was your age. And then when I was finally grown up, you know, to be able to get out of it. That was really some helpful, supportive advice on that guy, you know. So, but yeah, uh, look, no place is perfect. Schools aren't perfect. You know, home life isn't perfect. We do need, you know, elements of all of them. But, but I think that the, the point that we're both making here in, the, in these diminishing number of minutes uh, is part of the mix should be the remote educational option because there are a lot of benefits from it. And yeah. the other options are not just uniformly wonderful. They, they all have problems in one way or another. This trip down memory lane <laughs> to Paul's high school and Captain Phil's high school tragedies <laughs> uh, has been part of Bill McNulty's Lunch on Thursday. Uh, I want to thank Paul Levinson uh, for coming on. We're about five minutes away. We're going to start transitioning. We had Cut Supreme coming on at 1 o'clock um, with the training session. Scotty O and the Beatles show at 3 o'clock. Maybe he'll play some of that Paul McCartney Ram album, uh, Paul. Five o'clock, Democracy Now. Six o'clock, Sounds of Film, and at eight o'clock, my good friend Chris Laporta in, uh, in studio, live in studio. So all that is coming up here, Paul. One last time, how can people find you in the last few minutes here on the World Wide Web machine? Okay, well, one thing I didn't mention last time: search for me on Spotify, and you'll yes. find my artist page, and you'll find both my albums. Spice Upon a Rhyme, that came out in 1972, that for many years the only people who heard it were my wife and kids, but then it got rediscovered in Japan, 
anyway, my brand plan, as you've heard me say before, was to wait almost 50 years to come out with the yes. second album, yes. which I did in 2020. Well, no one up. expected that to happen. <laughs> Nobody expected it, at least of all me. Uh, I was stunned, even as I was singing it. But uh, it, that was recorded, just to give a shout out, in Batavia, New York. And by the way, every time now I see this Applebee's commercial, you know, there are a series of Applebee's commercials. Welcome back. Yes. I think it out. You know, and the, the Cheers, uh, you know, uh, song as well. Um, I think of the recording of Welcome Up because Tina and I, my wife went up there. She gave me some moral support when I was recording the album. And we had a great dinner in Applebee's. So, hey. Thank you, Applebee's. Uh, you're in part responsible. That was amazing that you had a great. It's, it's amazing on so many levels that you had a great dinner at Applebee's. <laughs> I apologize to Applebee's. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, they deserve a shout out because it's great to hear John Sebastian's "Welcome Back, Hatter" song again. You know? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, um, so you, you search for me on Spotify. You'll find all those songs. Um, I, I already mentioned you, find, you can find my science fiction as well as nonfiction all over uh, Amazon. Oh, I, I also have a blog called Paul Levinson's Infinite Regress. Yes. So you can do a search on that, Paul Levinson, that uh, apostrophe S, Infinite Regress. That's my attempt to be philosophically clever. Uh, it, it's primarily television reviews, but you'll find some political stuff as well as well thank you paul i am playing um uh, if i i knew you by heart um behind us right now as we transition to cut supreme so um i'm hearing your voice in my headphones right now <laughs> uh, both from from you and the zoom call and and the singing as well so it's it's kind of it's kind of wild. I knew you by heart. there it is there it is <laughs> Thank you so much, Paul. This has been a magnificent two hours. It went by very quickly, and I will uh, see you on the on the uh, Facebook and Internet machine, my friend. I'll get you a copy of this in a few hours. Thanks. Looking forward to it, Phil. Great pleasure talking and, to you, and, and thank you so much. We had a great chat, and uh, yeah, we covered a lot of ground, and you were right. We could go on for a couple more hours, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Let's try it someday. 20 yeah, hours. There you go. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Our, our own radio filibuster. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, my friend. See you soon. You too, folks. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Paul Levinson on Lunch on Thursday. We're about to transition over to CR1 and Cut Supreme. So, uh... Cut Supreme, you got about 30 seconds left, my friend, and then it's all you. And uh, thanks again, Cut, for all the great work you've been doing. See you guys around. Captain Phil's Planet, June 17th. Interview with Evership. Be there. It's going to be great. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that lengthy interview. I'll be back here soon, maybe with another interview. In fact, I'll be interviewing Jay Kensinger here on Light on Light Through next week. 
Or I might be back before then with another review. We'll just have to see. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sound, and enjoy. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson still codes about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries. 